those of you who are watching, um, the crowd in the parking lot is growing, and uh, you're invited to join us too, as you feel comfortable. Um, we're going to continue to both stream and uh, then make it available for us to be together like this. Um, it's a beautiful day, really good to be with you all. And as um, you feel more comfortable helping out with worship, being here, being present, and maybe pitching in to make it happen, um, we may be able to do this more often. And of course, we're always continuing to think through um, as the guidelines change what we can do in worshiping together. So there's going to continue to be news on that, I know, forthcoming. Uh, I have an announcement to make uh, about one of our precious saints, as we like to call those followers of Jesus. Uh, Arda Thompson passed away yesterday morning at around 8, 8.30 a.m. And uh, many of you will know Ardith. Uh Ardith has been uh, with the Trinity Church for uh, since the 40s, really. She was 96 years old. And uh, I know for some of you, she, you know, she's been a close friend. I think Paul was telling me um, he's known her for 43 years. So when he came as a Cal student, you know, she was a part of this church. Now, Solano Community Church merged with Trinity not too long ago. And those of us who have uh, been uh, part of Solano were then blessed to be able to get to know Artis. She's just a, a wonderful treasure of history of this church that we merged together with. And uh, just a wonderful saint, somebody who was always eager to serve. Uh, I think her granddaughter was telling me yesterday, she said, you know, um, when somebody has a need, this was her philosophy, when somebody has a need, don't ask, just go do it. Just go and serve. And so um, really special to be able to, to know her. And I know there'll be soon uh, ways of celebrating. And so we're, we'll let those know. We'll let you all know how that's going to happen so you can be a part of that. Uh, but Ardeth Thompson, Lord, thank you so much for this wonderful life that you allowed us to be a part of. Um, some of us a long time, some of us a short season. We are grateful uh, for people like Ardeth who are representatives of Christ, really, in so many, many ways. And the legacy of Ardeth is just massive. The number of lives that she touched, the people that she loved and encouraged and blessed. And we celebrate that this morning. And we look forward to celebrating it more as you provide opportunity for us to do that. And now, Lord, we ask that you'd uh, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. We want to we know you more. We want to fall in love with you more. We want to be better community together. We want to serve you more. So would you make all of that happen in the time that we have to look at these interesting words that were read for us uh, by Danny this morning. Please guide us in that, we ask in Jesus' name. Okay, so one of the things that I love about the Bible, and you saw this in the passage that was read for us earlier, is how it touches ground. And what, what do I mean by that? What I mean by the fact that the Bible touches ground is that it's, it's not some remote philosophical treatise uh, on ways that we should be thinking. Um, it is philosophical, and it's very theological as well, but it is deeply connected to actual lives of real people who lived at a real time and suffered real uh, circumstances and struggles. It it's touches ground. The Bible touches ground. And you could say that this isn't actually so common uh, when we look at sort of the, the palette of religious books in the world. Um, the Quran, the, the Bhagavad Gita, you know, uh, the various writings that we look at when we're, we're looking at the Buddhist Dharma. They're all more of a collection of sayings, generally speaking. 
Uh, and, 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 and what we have in the scripture is uh, this rich sort of historical account. It touches ground. The Bible touches ground. Real people, real lives that actually took place and have taken place on the earth. Um, it's very philosophical. It's very theological. But it all comes to us within the context of real life. Now, I have to say, as somebody who likes to, to read and to write some, you know, I'm, I'm always a little bit suspicious when it doesn't touch ground, when it's not rooted in reality. It's very easy to theorize um, and it's very easy to think about how things should be in an ideal kind of way that's disconnected from the real world. And, I, you know, I love to think deeply. I love to wrestle through deep questions. But I find that when we disconnect it from the reality of human life and actual circumstances, it's too easy in the abstract. It's too easy to ignore truths that might otherwise be inconvenient for us. I shared with you a few weeks back, I've been watching this show um, on Netflix called Grand Designs. It's sort of an architecture show. And it's about these uh, amazing people who try to build these um, ridiculously artistic buildings in impossible scenarios, situations, sites with very little money. And what they do inevitably is start off with a kind of a beautiful design of what they would want. But when they get into the reality of actually building it, they encounter all kinds of troubles. Maybe the way it was designed doesn't fit well with the particular site where they're trying to build it. And so adjustments have to be made. The reality of actually making the building causes them to have to think through more carefully what it is that they're actually trying to do. Or maybe the flow of the building doesn't happen as they thought it would on paper. And so they need to take out a wall, put in a different wall over here. Or maybe the real glass that they purchased doesn't fit the way that they thought it would into the building. You see, something happens when we actually touch ground, when the things that we're thinking about have to connect with the real world. And this is what you see so powerfully in the scripture that we read this morning already. I see this in my life as a pastor and as a preacher as well. You know, uh, over the past 22 years, being intimately involved with people's lives, I've seen over and over again how the scripture will speak into those unique moments, whether, you know, somebody has just passed away and, and we need comfort for that, um, whether we're at a point of struggle and we, and we don't understand how to go forward in life and we need wisdom and uh, we'll, we'll get that from scripture. And, and what I notice about that so often is that it's not just the sayings that are in scripture. Oftentimes it's the very circumstances in which the things are being said that also minister to us. So we looked earlier in the book of Philippians how uh, Paul said, he makes this incredible statement, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, that's a beautiful statement, and, and you could take that on its face value. But when you read the, the, the letter to the Philippians and you understand that Paul is writing that from a, a prison cell, right? That changes the dynamic of the statement itself. 
For me to live is Christ to die is grain. And not only is he in a prison cell, but he's awaiting the verdict over his life, whether he would potentially be executed or not. So when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, he's saying it within that context. And that means something to us. So when we come to a passage like we have today, where it sort of seems like, you know, people call it a travel log. It's almost like Paul is telling us, you know, where people are going and, and, and how they're moving about. You might be tempted to skip over it and say, well, I, you know, does that really matter to me? That happened way back then. And what I find over and over again is that as you dig into the actual history, the, the historical moment, um, you'll, you'll, you'll find that the, the truths that are being spoken of within the particular scripture will come to life in a new and a fresh way. And I hope you'll see that this morning as we look at this passage um, together. So as we kind of try and squeeze the juice out of this text uh, that we already read, um, I, I'd like to start by first of all telling you the story because it might have gone past you sort of quickly. Uh, after that, I want to... I wanna, um, just kind of open up a, a thought for you about how life really is, um, especially as pertains to ministry. Now, Paul is a minister of the gospel. And when we hear that, we can often think, well, um, what does that have to do with my life? I'm just a follower of Jesus. But here's the thing we need to understand as we think about having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, which, by the way, um, if you're uh, in that place, and I, and I hope there's some of you here this morning or maybe listening online where you're in that place where you're sort of questioning, what does it mean to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Let me just do a little parentheses and, and talk about that briefly. So the amazing thing about God, as we understand God from the scripture, is that in that moment when people, humanity turned away from God, and God had the choice to, to sort of turn his back on us because we had turned away from him, he didn't do that. He pursued us. He decided to pursue us. And there's a long story of that pursuit in the Old Testament, but what we believe is that that pursuit comes to its, its ultimate fruition in the person of Jesus Christ, that, that Christ is God coming after us. And so when we read the New Testament, we read it through that lens and we understand that this loving, incredible human being, that this human being, Jesus, you know, of whom nobody ever said, hey, he should have said it this way or he should have, son, should have done this. I mean, the most, the most incredible human being to walk the earth is in fact God himself pursuing us. And what that entailed was not only to take on flesh and to be with us in the world, to experience all the things that human beings experience, but then also um, to do this amazing thing, to, to, to be willing to go to the cross and offer himself an atoning sacrifice there, which, which drew on all that Old Testament history of, of the sacrifice of, you know, the lambs and, and the other animals and the other sacrifices that were people, people made. They were never enough. But when Jesus came and he offered himself, that sacrifice was finally enough to pay the penalty for sin, which had caused that separation from God in the very beginning. And Jesus, God in the flesh, was willing to do that. That's what the, the Bible is about. That's what Christianity is about. And that's what ministry is about. That's what being a disciple is about. And it starts, the very first thing that we do when we, when we realize what Jesus has done, you ask, well, so what does that mean for us? And the appropriate step, the natural next step is for us to place our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, now that... 
that's something that we do with some knowledge. We never do it with all the knowledge. It's, it, 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 there's always mystery involved. But we take that step of faith to say, yes, I see who you are, God. I see Jesus, who you are. I, I would like to attach myself to you. I believe in you. Um, I would like for your atoning work to apply to my life and heal me from my sin so that I can be connected to the, to the creator of this world. Um, and, then, and then the amazing part of that is that God gives us his Holy Spirit and we go on this journey of, of coming to know who, who God is, of actually being transformed from the inside out. And it's slow and it's frustrating and, and we keep on sinning, but, but God is at work. This is the beautiful story of Christianity. And, and the thing about um, ministry, which is what we're going to talk about today, is that ministry isn't just reserved for some few who might be especially called by God to be um, apostles or pastors or deacons or elders or whatever it is of the different titles that we use. Ministry is for every follower of Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are in ministry. You are in ministry. That's just the reality of life. So everything that we're going to say today applies to you. I, I don't want you to be listening and say, well, that's for the, that group, that special group of people who follow Jesus and are in ministry, as if there is a different group. The reality is that if we come to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we are in ministry. Now it's going to take all kinds of different forms. And I just love, even, I'm so, I can't tell you how happy I am to see you all. I, I think of all the different ways in which you have been uniquely made and the different giftings that you have. I mean, just I mean, Jamie's prayer today, you know, Keith leading us in worship um, Esther, like you just see all these different gifts and God brings them all together. He's given every single one of us, uh, the artist's life. He's given every single one of us a ministry to discharge, to bless others and to love others. And it's that work, it's that life that Paul's bringing us into in this text this morning to help us understand what it is to live in that way. And it's going to be different maybe than what you thought. That's what the message that comes out of this text is. So let's dig in. Let's squeeze the juice out of this text. We're going to tell the story. We're going to think about how life really is when you're in ministry, which if you're with Jesus, you're always in ministry. And then I want to remind us of the kind of people that Jesus is seeking to serve him. And if we're not that person yet, the kind of people that Jesus is going to make us into as we serve God and we love others. So let's jump right in with the story. Um, if you want to look at the text, you can. Um, Philippians 2, 19 um, is where we're looking. Um, and let me just give you a little background. We, some of this you've already understood because we've been sitting with the, the letter to the Philippian church here for a little while. But on the one side, in the city of Philippi, which is, you know, this Mecca for retired Roman soldiers, but there's this little Christian church that's growing up in the middle of it. So that you've got Philippi and there's some tension there between the, the, um, the, the larger society that worships the emperor and these Christians are standing out because they don't worship the emperor, they worship Jesus. And there's persecution happening and that persecution, as you know, this often happens, that persecution is creating tensions within the church itself. So there's stress in Philippi and in the Philippian church. 
Then there's Paul who writes the letter to the Philippians, the Philippian church, and he is probably in Rome. He's in prison somewhere. The best guess is that he's in Rome. So we'll just say for our purposes that he's in prison in Rome. Now, to be in prison in, in, in those times was, you know, very much different from what it is now. I mean, you, you might have had a little bit of food and water, but you really had to rely on others. So hopefully you had some friends and some family to take care of you while you were in prison. So it was a really big deal to go visit somebody in prison and to bring money to provide for their needs, um, to help them medically, because without that, then they didn't really have any of, of those resources. And so Paul's in stress and he's waiting to find out if he's going to be killed. We don't know the ins and outs of it, but we know that he, in his letter to the Philippians, is describing that he's sort of waiting for the verdict. Am I going to live or am I going to die? Now, the Philippian church um, characteristically has taken care of Paul. They've, they've done this in a number of ways. They entered into partnership with him after he first started the church there in the city of Philippi. Uh, and they supported him as, as he was going. And Paul calls, out, calls them out. He says, you guys are wonderful. None of the other churches in that region supported me. You alone entered into partnership to support me. Uh, and, and then when I went to Thessalonica, he'll say this later in chapter 4, you know, you sent help to me more than once. So there's this relationship between the Philippian church and Paul of mutual support. They love Paul because he loved them and they're supporting one another. Uh, and then he, he calls them out in chapter 4. He says, now you've revived your concern for me. And how has, have the Philippians revived their concern? Well, they send this guy named Epaphroditus from Philippi to Rome to support Paul. And they probably sent him with some money. They sent him maybe with some food, probably just money to buy food there. And, and, and then just to be a person of presence and encouragement for Paul while he languishes there in prison, waiting for the verdict on his life. So the Philippians send Paul, send Epaphroditus to take care of Paul. But Epaphroditus, as he's either on the way to Rome or while he's in Rome becomes sick and he becomes really sick like like near death sick. So Paul receives this gift but the gift gets sick. And so there he is, you know, presumably wondering uh, what to do, praying and, and stressed. Word gets back to Philippi that Epaphroditus is sick. So they know that he's sick. They don't know what's happened as we pick up the story as we're in it. Um, Epaphroditus recovers there in in Rome. Um, but the Philippians don't know, so they're just still in anguish. They just know that he was sick near to death, but they don't know that he's recovered. And then, as Epaphroditus recovers there in Rome, he reveals to Paul, remember Paul's the founder of this Philippian church, he reveals to Paul that the church is struggling. And we don't know the ins and outs. Paul doesn't give us all of the details, but there's tension in the church as a result of the persecution on the church from the, from the people around. So there's tension. And so Paul, as he languishes in prison, gets this news after Epaphroditus recovers from this sickness where he almost died. He gets this news that there's tensions. And we know Paul carries a lot of stress uh, with him for all the churches that he started all around that region. And so this would have hit him deep in the heart to find out that there's those tensions there. 
So Paul's really concerned and he lines up three journeys. That's what this text that was read for us is about. He says, you know, uh, first I want to send Timothy to you because Timothy's my, my ringer, my number one assistant. And I know that if he goes, he will help you out. He will help you deal with the persecution. He will help you with the tensions in your church. Um, but, but he's unable to send Timothy because he is in such distress in Rome that he needs Timothy for we don't know exactly what. But he needs Timothy to stay with him. So he sends Epaphroditus back first. And he wants him to, to be able to go back and say, well, first of all, I'm here. I'm not dead. I've, I've recovered. So you, thanks for your prayers. And then he wants him to deliver this letter, which Paul has so carefully written, this letter that we've been studying. And I hope you've been reading it a little bit on your own, where Paul just pours out his heart to the Philippians. He floods them with the knowledge of his love for them and the relationship that he's had with them. And then he encourages them. He admonishes them on how to deal with their present circumstances. So, so you can tell that Paul's pretty worked up because he, he, he's got these, he, he wants to send Timothy, but he, he can't yet. He, so he sends Epaphroditus. And then he says, and then I'm going to come to you after that. So three visits, Philippian church. Um, Epaphroditus is going to come. And then I hope to send Timothy, my ringer. He's going to help. And then I'm going to come if I don't get killed. That's the situation. That's the story of Paul and the Philippian church and this letter, this communication that's going back. And it tells us something about the reality of ministry. And again, ministry is just life with Jesus. It tells us something about the reality of ministry in the world. The reality of ministry in the real world. Let's look at that. Here's the reality. I want you to step back for a moment and think about everything that's happening, how all that's unfolding from Paul's perspective, right? All he ever wanted to do was serve the Lord. He just went out and he sacrificed and he loved and he tried to do all the things that God would want him to do. Um, that was his desire. So, but here, but, but, but this is the circumstance he finds himself in. He's, he's in Rome, he's in prison. So there's a physical element to his stress and his anxiety and his strain. Imagine a Roman prison with little or no food um, or, or water or medical supplies. Uh, and, and so he's dependent on outside help, which would make a person quite anxious. Um, he's got the mental anguish of waiting to find out what the verdict is going to be on his life. Very few of us have probably ever had to, 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 to even be in that kind of a circumstance where we're wondering, you know, um, our very breath is, is hanging by a thread on the decision of somebody else, okay? The beliefs that Paul had were oftentimes un, unpopular and, and there were those who were out to get him and wanted to see him dead. And so he was accused unfairly. And so there he is in prison. And he's wondering if he's going to make it. If he's going to be uh, able to go on living or if this will be the end. So imagine the mental stress. And then think about, you know, how he would, how he would die if he were going to die. The, the methods for, you know, execution um, were not pretty in, in Roman times. Uh, beheading strangling, being cast from a great height, being buried alive, drowning, uh, death by beast, right? If he's in Rome, he could have been 
food for entertainment thrown in the Colosseum. Um, and even, very rarely for Roman citizens, but even uh, in the worst cases, crucifixion. Usually that was reserved for the non-Roman citizens. Paul's a Roman citizen. But here he is, he's got the mental anguish of wondering, am I going to die? And if I do die, how am I going to die? And then he has this social element. We read this earlier on. Um, while he's waiting, the other Christian leaders, this is so, it's remarkable to me that we have this in the text, but the other Christian leaders are taking advantage of his imprisonment to make him look bad. Right? Everybody's in ministry. Everybody sins. And that's what's happening with these Christian leaders. They're trying to make him look bad. They're trying to, I don't know what it says, you know, they're doing, they're doing it out of rivalry. Maybe they're trying to woo his, his disciples while he's stuck in prison. Um, maybe they're, maybe they're, they're casting aspersions on Paul saying, oh, look, there must be something wrong with him. He's in prison, right? And so he's got the social dynamic working at him. Um, and then his blood, beloved Philippian church. There, there's a special connection, it seems, between Paul and the Philippian church because the way the letter's written and the amount of love that just gushes forth from it and the support that they have continually given to Paul, um, there's some special connection there. And now they send Epaphroditus. And so he's, so he's like, oh, yes, you've sent somebody to care for me and to take care of my need while I'm, I'm in prison. And then Epaphroditus gets sick and almost dies. So he's carrying the weight of having this wonderful gift being sent to him and then almost, almost dying right in his very presence. And then when Paphroditus does recover and get up, he says, oh, Paul, uh, by the way, things are not so good back in Philippi. So think about this from Paul's perspective, who just wants to serve Jesus. He just wants to love the Lord. And thing after thing after thing keeps happening. It seems like it's going in the opposite direction. It's a mess. And this is the point. This is the reality check that, that I want us to grapple with out of this, this text. Here's the lesson. Ministry is often a mess. Just like Paul outlines here. As we, as we look at the life of Paul and we see all the things that he is grappling with and all the things that have seemingly gone wrong, when his intent was merely to step out and to serve Jesus, when we see all of that taking place, um, and it reminds me of you know, what he talked about in 2 Corinthians 11, where he, he lists out the kinds of ways that he has suffered in the service of Jesus. Um, imprisonments, beatings, a stoning, multiple shipwrecks, um, robbers, wilderness dangers, false brothers and sisters, sleeplessness, hunger, thirst. And then he mentions that daily anxiety that he feels for all the churches and for the individuals in the church. I mean, the thing about Paul is, and this is a hard thing, he has such a big heart that he couldn't help but live with that heart out there. But that just means that heart's going to get trampled. Like some people are really, you know, they don't have, it doesn't hurt that much. When Paul seems to have taken it all on board, he didn't, he didn't have a callousness about him. He, he, he took everything. He said, you know, whatever bad happens to somebody, I feel it. Ministry is messy. Life is messy. Life with Jesus is extremely messy at times. This week I reread uh, one of my favorite descriptions of the life of the 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon. You may have, I've talked about him before. Um, Spurgeon had a massive impact on 
uh, as a pastor and, and teacher and, and founder of all kinds of different um, organizations, orphanages and, and what have you. I'm just a wonderful, wonderful um, servant of the Lord in the 19th century. And um, I even looked, I was a little curious because I know a lot of times we hear about people like this and, and we find out they have a, a dark kind of past. And um, I thought, um, given that it's February, and I would look up and see, well, what was Spurgeon's relationship to slavery? Because a lot of these people that we look at um, during that time, you know, just it's discouraging when we find out how they related to some of these other issues. And so this is an amazing thing. I read this, this is a little bit of an aside, but here's what Spurgeon said about slavery in his day. He said, I do from my inmost soul detest slavery. And although I commune at the Lord's table with men of all creeds, yet with a slaveholder, I have no fellowship of any sort or kind. Whenever a slaveholder has called upon me, I have considered it my duty to express my detestation of his wickedness, and I would as soon think of receiving a murderer into my church as a man stealer. And, you know, sermon sales dipped when he said these things. Um, he was shunned by the Southern Baptists um, and, and others. And so I just throw it out there because uh, Spurgeon was somebody who stands against what we often see in some of these old um, leaders who were wonderful in so many ways, but, but then participated in things like slavery in ways that were, you know, just cause us so much cognitive uh, dissonance as we think about them. Spurgeon, Spurgeon seems in some ways to, to just be so wonderful on a number of levels. He's the kind of person that you look at and if you were eager to be in ministry and, and, and serving the Lord, you would be potentially envious about all the things that he accomplished. At his 50th birthday, they had like 66 institutions that he had started, organizations. I mean, just an amazing thing. But there's another side of Spurgeon's story that is also needing to be told. And that's the side of suffering and pain. When he was 22, he was preaching... Um, at the Royal Surrey Gardens uh, to 10,000 people and somebody yelled fire. They were all crowded in there and somebody yelled fire and a stampede ensued and seven people were killed and scores of people were injured. He said of that event later on in life that perhaps never uh, a soul went so near the burning furnace of insanity um, as he tried to process what had happened on that evening. The next day, his twin sons were born, the only kids that they were able to have together. So in the midst of this cloud and this heaviness, these twin sons were born. And then soon after that, his wife became ill. She became so ill eventually that she was quite incapacitated. And for, you know, 27 years, she was unable really to, to spend much time out of the house, certainly to go and participate with him in ministry, to hear him, hear him preach at all. Um, and then at age 35, he began to suffer with, with bouts of, of gout and, and the pain, um, which he compared to being uh, bitten by a cobra. I, I haven't had gout, and, but I've heard that it is one of the most painful things. In fact, it was so painful for him that for the last 22 years of his ministry and his life, um, he had to spend a third of his time either trying to protect himself from gout or recovering from, from gout. Um, because it was so overwhelming. And so he was constantly sidelined. In the midst of all that, he was, he was always in controversy because he was such a, a large figure and, had, and, and was, you know, ministering to so many people. He had people on 
who, who, would, who would say he's too conservative and people say, who said he was too liberal. And he's such a big heart. He took it all into himself. And so, you know, he was in these controversies constantly. Um, and and, and you, if you read his writings, you just hear how much pain, uh, how, how he took it all to, to heart. And then lastly, he suffered from depression. And so he talks about um, there would be seasons where he would spend um, hours on end weeping. And he didn't even know why he was weeping. So here was a man who, who suffered uh, deeply, who just wanted to serve God, but suffered deeply as a, in the process of doing so. And it brings me back to my point, which is that ministry, life is messy. It's messy. Ministry is messy. And if we don't understand that ministry is messy, you know, then, and that this is a reality for believers um, since the day of Paul, and even since, since Jesus, I mean, the cross is is a pretty messy thing. The cross, is a, the cross of Jesus Christ is a messy thing. If we don't understand that this is just the way it is, then when it becomes messy, all kinds of things happen. We, we become confused or destabilized or dismayed or we, we have a sense of defeat. Um, you know, all kinds of responses that, that come to us. If we don't understand that this is part of how God works in the world so often, it's through the messiness through the things that we didn't want or, or anticipate. And if we don't understand that much of the time ministry advances through the messiness and the brokenness and the loss and the suffering and the pain, then we have no option but to view the messiness as failure. And when we view it as failure, you know, here's what oftentimes happens is we say, well, some, there, there's failure here. It can't be God because God doesn't fail. So it must have been somebody. And then we try to find the person who failed and let them know. And this is exactly how Job's friends are born. You remember the story of Job when his friends came along? He's in the midst of intense suffering. And his friends, they wanted to help. But what they did is they tried to point out why it was his fault that he was suffering. And so uh, in that moment, um, we have this tremendous lesson um, it's all too common that when people are suffering and we don't understand their suffering, it's par for the course. Right? We don't understand that this is part of how God often works and moves. That we add to the pain of suffering by, by telling people that it's, it's their fault. You know, blessed are those who remember that ministry happens in the messiness. And, and that's no excuse for us not to seek to grow. Suffering is not... You know, the fact that it's messy doesn't mean we, we should just say, well, it's always messy. Who cares? I'll just do whatever I want. Absolutely not. Um, we have to address the things that are in, in our control. We have to try to grow. And it's, it's in the messiness that God reveals what's in our hearts oftentimes, where we need to grow and how we need to change. And so we need to have a humble posture about the messiness of life to be able to ask the question, what, God, what are you showing me and what do I need to grow in? And we have people in our lives who understand the messiness and are there in the midst of it and can, can mirror back to us the things that God might be saying to us. So, so growth and transformation is, is part of it. But we also have to understand that there's something deeper than, than just that. That messiness is a part of the very fabric of following Jesus Christ of walking with Jesus Christ, of ministry, if you want to say it that way. 
So given that messiness is with us, it's the reality of Jesus and the life of Jesus, the disciples. You, look, you can't read the gospels without seeing all the messiness of the life of the disciples. And then you've got the stories of Paul and the circumstances of Paul's life. Um, given that messiness is the reality of ministry, what kind of person is required for it? Or what kind of person does it cause us to become? Or what kind of person is God growing us into through the messiness of ministry and life? I think one of the other great contributions of this passage, and I'm going to go quickly through this last part, is to show us some of the key qualities of a minister of the gospel. What are some of the key qualities of a disciple of Jesus Christ? There's a popular leadership axiom that urges leaders to celebrate what you want to see more of. Celebrate what you want to see more of, right? That makes sense. Celebrate what you want to see more of. And that's what Paul, in fact, is doing here with Timothy and Epaphroditus. He's commending them to the Philippian church so that when they go there, the Philippian church will receive them. And so it's instructive to us to understand what he's commending them for. What is Paul commending Timothy and Epaphroditus for? What is he calling out? Because that helps us to understand what kind of person God is turning us into as we seek to serve him. So a few qualities come out of this text. First of all, Paul calls out Timothy's genuine concern for the welfare of others. He contrasts this with seek people who seek their own interests. So one of the things that God is doing when we serve him, when we seek to step into ministry, into service, when we follow Jesus, is he's turning us into people who are genuinely concerned for the welfare of others. It's really a, hum a quality of humility, which has been so much a theme in the book of Philippians. Remember we defined humility? Uh, it, I was saying humility is a very... It's a huge topic, very mysterious, but in the, in the particular text that we've been studying, you could define humility in this way. Humility is an inclination to lose your own wants and merits. Wants and merits, two key components, so that there will be space for others. So somebody that is growing into service of the Lord is growing in genuine concern for others. Another quality that's present of those who are in ministry, who are enduring the, the hardship of ministry, is relational closeness. If you look at the text, it reminds us that Paul uses this language. He says, Timothy is like a son to me and Epaphroditus is like a brother to me. There's that kind of familial language all throughout the New Testament when we're talking about people that we're serving together with. A son and a brother. You get the strong impression that they they're share their life together in deep and abiding ways. And that ought to be true of us as well. Actually, the elders actually called me out on this recently. Just in transparency. And it was right that they did. And I have attempted to respond. So I got to move quickly though. The genuine concern, the relational closeness, the teamwork, um, fellow worker is actually one of the words that would be literally translated as, it's actually one word and you translate it with worker. So co-worker, a co-worker, but we use co-worker in a kind of nonchalant way with somebody that we might not even like. This really means a with worker, but in a more robust sense. 
So genuine concern, relational closeness, teamwork, and then the next one is toughness because Paul calls Epaphroditus a with soldier. Now remember, they're, they're in the context of Philippi where all these retired Roman soldiers are, you know, these crusty, hard-as-nail old men who'd been through hell and back together. They live in Philippi. So when, when Paul says that Epaphroditus is a fellow soldier, he's, he's saying it within that context. He's a with soldier. Um, they knew in Philippi what the toughness of a soldier was about. It wasn't an abstract idea for them. And if we're going to be in service together, partnership in the gospel, it requires a toughness. Uh, and then there's a sentness. Uh, the word that is in there about the ministry is, is about uh, Paul, uh, Epaphroditus being sent. So there's a capital A apostle. That's what the word apostle means. It means sent. And then there's a small a apostle. And I love this. One of the most striking things, um, just as we finish up here, about Spurgeon's life, the, the preacher that I mentioned earlier, um, is that um, even in the midst of all the things he was struggling with, he continued to have this deep heartbeat to bring people into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Even in the midst of all the struggles. He says this, I remember when I have preached at different times. And look, his ministry was preaching. Yours might not be preaching. That's okay. Whatever it is that you're called to do. He says, I remember when I've preached at different times in the country, sometimes here, referring to London, that my whole soul was agonized over people. Every nerve of my body had been strained and I could have wept my very being out of my eyes, carried my whole frame away in a flood of tears if I could but win souls. Sentness. So genuine concern, relational closeness, teamwork, toughness, sentness, and then lastly, servant-mindedness. Epaphroditus almost died bringing the gift from the Philippian church to Paul. He almost died, but he was willing to do what it took to potentially lose his life in the service of Christ. And that's where God is taking us as followers of Jesus Christ. You cannot escape the language all throughout the New Testament, which calls us to die to self in order to find our life. We, we, we lose our lives in order to find them. That's the nature of serving the Lord. Genuine concern, relational closeness, teamwork, toughness, sentness, servant-mindedness. And I ask you as I close, why would anybody want to do any of those things? Why would anybody want to step into a life like that of ministry, of discipleship. If it means suffering, if it means hardship, if it means messiness, why would anybody want to do it? And the answer is, on some level, I don't know. But you know what? For the last 2,000 years, it keeps happening. People keep stepping into that kind of life over and over again. And you know what? We have in this church some amazing, many amazing people like that who have stepped into that kind of life, willingly serving and suffering. And we ought to be grateful for those people. I wish I could start calling out names because, you know, even in all seasons and in this season, they have been serving and laying it down and suffering for the sake of this church. Not as some, you know, abstract entity that this church is real people. And we've got people willing to suffer and lay it down for them. And I celebrate it. I'm so grateful. And you know what? Lastly, we want to raise up more people like that. I'm going to talk about this next week. I think though, just in closing, that the big part of the reason that people keep answering this call 
is simply this, is that when you find something that's really, really true, that seems like absolute truth, you realize it's better to live for that than to live a comfortable life for a lie. And that's why people keep stepping up to serve and minister and love Jesus, even when it gets messy and when it causes suffering and pain and loss and grief and discomfort. The reason they keep stepping up is because true joy is in doing something that's really true rather than living a lie that produces some kind of false comfort. So I praise God for that. I praise God for the joy that comes in our becoming like Christ. And Lord, would you make it so all the more as we seek to follow you, to serve you, to love you, to know you, to love one another, to partner together in the gospel for your sake. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.